So welcome to Meanderings with Trudy. Joining me today is Dina Belaroche. She and I met at Angie Arndt's uh, Enneagram class. We've been talking, figure about 2018 was when we last connected. Dina is also an Ottawa-based coach. Um, and she has uh, a slightly different background than mine in that she comes out of high-performance sports. And she also has another component of her work that um, deals with helping us handle grief, have those conversations that allow us to move forward from, you know, grief, however it has shown up in your life, big, big G and small. So, uh, so welcome, Dina, and thank you for joining me today. Mm, thanks for having me. It's, um, it's so delightful to be with you, Trudy, and, and more and more people are inviting me to have these kinds of, you know, beautiful conversations about a topic that usually people don't want to talk about. Oh, yeah. And, and I just think it's so important for us to, you know, sit in the big reimagining of what it means to live through life losses. And it, let's be truthful, if we're here long enough, we're going to experience, I love what you said, both the small G and the big G, what I call the micro losses, the everyday losses that we learn to adapt and compartmentalize. And depending on how big our window of tolerance is, we might be able to withstand greater and greater losses in a place of health. And yet sometimes we experience those life altering that eat, pray, love moments, you know, that have you sitting, lying, crying on the kitchen floor, wondering how you're going to pick up the pieces of your shattered life. Mm. And so all of those moments from the little micro to the macro losses, really important in my opinion, to give people the literacy what we call grief and loss literacy, the ABCs and one, two, threes of what it means to integrate loss as a healthy human being. And when we can do that, my own lived experience after suffering a life altering loss is that my capacity to experience joy has been expanded as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And when I, when I invited you, we talked about that ever so briefly by, uh, by, by messenger, just how grief and loss are opposite sides of the same experience. And so there's a lot, to, a lot to unpack in what you just talked about. How did you, how did you get into this kind of work? Let's start there. I mean, another question, of course, is why do you think we need these conversations? So you can pick which one you want to, which thread you want to pick up. Mm. Well, let me, let me maybe start with why. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think most people are like, really? Like you want to talk about death and loss? Wow, you're a barrel of laughs at the dinner table. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, you and I go back, we share a history around journalism, which is fantastic. And quickly I moved into, you know, the, the realm of my life that has brought me so much joy, which is working in high performance sport. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm now into my 32nd year of serving in the Canadian sport community. So I've come to know a thing or two about loss because of course the whole construct of sport, you have winners and you have losers and there's a whole narrative around how we hold loss, mm -hmm. you know, in, in my sector. And so it's always been kind of niggling at me because I, I have background in, in, you know, in ethical decision-making and frameworks and, and been an advocate for fair and ethical sport and safe sports since the beginning of, of my uh, experience in sport. But what brought me to my knees was a life-altering loss. Mm. And that occurred in, in 2001, February 17th, 2001, when my younger sister, Tracy, died. Yeah. And she died, um, you know, she died in what we would say, you know, tragic circumstances, new baby, new mom. I had a new baby, new mom. And mm. she was diagnosed on parallel tracks while she was pregnant with her son, and uh, a year later, she died. Mm. And so this roller coaster ride of, of dancing with, with a, a cancer diagnosis and learning to be a parent and learning to be a sister of a dying sister, although we never acknowledged that she was dying, we never went down that pathway. And truth be told, uh, Trudy, in my, in my book that's going to be published next year, I talk about that, right? The regret for the one thing that I did not have the courage to do, which was to ask Tracy, you know, I believe with all my heart, you're going to get through this, but if you don't, 
what are the things that you want for Liam, your, your boy, your baby boy? How do you want us to remember you? Mm-hmm. And as her sister, you know, I, I never had, I never found the courage. There was a small window of opportunity mm-hmm. and she opened it up and we just kind of bumbled around it and she didn't want to hurt me and I didn't want to hurt her. And I thought by articulating it, I would manifest it. So instead we found beautiful ways, which I'm happy to share with you how we continued our bond, which is a, a beautiful theory in, in grief and bereavement mm-hmm. theory. I mean, after she died. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have some felt sense around some of that after my mother died. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that that's my why it's to, honor Tracy and through my own exploration, you know, I feel like I've earned the right Mm -hmm. to be able to talk about grief and loss from a place of informed, you know, research, evidence-based and my own lived experience. And then of course, my, my, um, my continued bond with Tracy has Mm -hmm. brought hope Mm -hmm. to, to masses, right. Who've read about the stories, read about the ways in which we've kept her memory alive, both in Nicaragua, now back at home in Wabaskang, Mm -hmm. Kenora, Um, and, and I just, I feel that that, that story is one that ripples out and creates, um, an opportunity for post-traumatic growth, which is also part of this narrative. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because you've set up a charity in your sister's name, right? Yeah. So it's, it's really more of a, um, a a project or a campaign through the charity school box. Mm -hmm. And I, I linked my sister's legacy, if you will, her, her namesake to, to school box. And, and in so doing, we, you know, we've built uh, two classrooms in Nicaragua and, and two libraries. And then we, we are the, the first kind of project because we're, we're trying to bring school box home mm-hmm. um, for important reasons. And, and it was really beautiful to, to collaborate with uh, the indigenous community up in Wabaskang and the kids at school and Tracy's going to be, you know, there's a, there's going to be a whole dedicated outdoor learning center where indigenous, um, you know, healings and practices, and there's a fire pit and it's all outside. So it's Mm land-based and Tracy's hope um, has, has gone there to nourish uh, both her memory and in support of children, which was, you know, her most important, mission, if I can call it that, was just being uh, a source of hope for children. Right. Before she died, she worked as a young offender for the William E. Hay Center here in Ottawa. And uh, a young offender uh, counselor or she was a, a probation officer, actually. Okay. Uh-huh. Wow. And okay. the kids just absolutely love Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I have actually an extraordinary story. If, if you'd like sure. to hear it, it's yeah. mind boggling. So, and we learn quickly when we do this work and as thanatology students that these extraordinary events are written about in research. So those two have evidence uh, to support them. So this extraordinary event, you know, happened about three years before Tracy's death anniversary of 20 years. So year 17, I'm, um, my husband and I are about to go sailing and I receive a a message on my Facebook account Mm -hmm. and it's from a, a young woman and her story went something like this. Hi, Dina, you don't know me. My name is Bonnie and your sister saved my life. And so I'm reaching out 14 years later, 15 years later to thank all the women in my life who made, you know, made it possible for me to still be alive, for me to, you know, get my stuff together. And now I'm a parent of three kids. So I receive this. You can imagine yeah. I'm bawling and I, I don't even, I can't find the words. I I'm tearing up now as I'm sharing this with you. Yeah. I turned to my husband. I'm like, you have to read this. And so I reached back out to her and I said, Bonnie, you want to talk? And so we, we started to connect. Well, at Tracy's 20th death anniversary, which was uh, last year, we're in a pandemic. We wanted to do something special because that's part of healing rituals around how do we honor and commemorate these milestone moments, mm-hmm. both before we die and then after we die. Mm-hmm. And so we invited Bonnie and doesn't Bonnie, you know, start to share her story. Mm-hmm. It was, she had everybody in tears because she, she had this, and I've, I actually got her permission to share the letter, mm-hmm. you know, that she wrote me thanking me for, for, you know, accepting her into our lives and, and continuing to honor her. And so her letter is in my book mm-hmm. to talk about 
how we can continue to impact others, even after our bodies have died, you know, this legacy of love can continue. And it's incumbent on those of us who can battle and grapple with our grief, we can get through the experience in a way that just awakens a whole other dimension of hope and love. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Serendipity, these things, eh? And yet not. Yeah. You used a word, thanatology? What is that? So if you write the word thanatology, Mm -hmm. it comes up as an error. (laughs) <laughs> that's which funny is, which is why i'm an yeah. advocate of sure. than, student of thanatology it's the study so ology of mm-hmm. grief and loss thanos right. so it is so interesting to me that we don't know this biology Absolutely. right and which it, is why is, which is why i laugh right like it's oh we can't compute can't compute which is exactly our experience with grief when it happens, right? I don't understand this. Why did this happen? Why did it happen to me? Why did it happen to them? What is all this going to mean for me now? A big mistake has happened, right? Yeah. And, exactly. and we can't compute. And so it, I find it funny that you you plug it into Google and it comes up as a mistake. It's exactly. an error. We can't find it, which is just, it speaks volumes, it does. And it, does. it really is. I mean, when I, when I kept typing it, you know, for my assignments, it, it just was frustrating me. And I thought I'm going to have to write Google and maybe because I'm using it so often in my blogs, it will, it will show the algorithm that this is not a typo. This yeah, is, this, in is fact a, this is a thing, a, a, a real, real field of study. And a blind spot in our human experience in most of Western society, right? I won't say in the world because there are lots of places where they handle grief in a different way. But in our North American or or Western view of the world, and not even Western Indigenous societies in North America handle grief in a different way. At least I think they have traditions where they have. So it's, it's, it's unique to sort of this time and place. Oh, absolutely. And I love that you situated this conversation in our social location. And I love that you've acknowledged, you know, I come from, well, both of us, I think, are in the Algonquin Anishinaabe territory. territory. Mm-hmm. And and what's really fascinating for me is when I, I spend more and more time with Indigenous elders and teachers, and I, I, I learn more about their rituals and practices, I'm really drawn intuitively. It's like an embodied sense and a relief washes over me, Trudy, to know that you mean there's nothing wrong with me. Like the fact that I want to maintain a relationship with my deceased sister, you mean that's healthy and their worldview, just like the Mexicans, for instance, in Los Dias de los Muertes, right? Mm -hmm. The Day of the The Dead. dead. Mm -hmm. uh, They would actually say there's something wrong if you don't don't. want to. Mm Like that, like how, how do we think the, here's, you know, maybe some grief literacy 101. So grief, natural, you know, embodied response to loss, to a severed attachment, right? Mm -hmm. So think of a bone breaking, our natural response would be to go out Mm -hmm. and there'd be an internal, you know, experience to the reordering of that, that, that severed attachment. Yeah. And so loss is a severing of an attachment. And it's based primarily, our understanding of this in a more academic setting is based on John Bowlby's work, right? Around attachment theory. Mm-hmm. Attachment theory. Really yes. helpful for us mm-hmm. to understand that, yes. right? Yeah. So attachment theory and Freud and Lindemann and like there's all kinds of amazing theorists, Kubler-Ross, they were like early pioneers in how we formed. And we, I would say more European, you mm-hmm. know, westernized mm-hmm. society that would start to form some deepened understanding around this. Well, even Kubler-Ross herself, who is probably the most known, mm-hmm. you know, researcher this, and this academic stages of grief and da, da, da. Who, who would be turning over in her grave. In fact, you know, one of her favorite <laughs> quotes is like, why did I, those Americans, yeah. you know, take my thing and make it a linear step? linear? Yeah. Like it's some kind of ladder. Yeah. Like first you do one and, and then, then you, you do the two, other and then you go to anger and bargaining yeah. and then and, you're and clearly you're up. broken. If you're still back in, a previous stage, right? Exactly. So grief, natural, you know, response to loss, it's internal, 
And it will affect you in different ways, depending on your life history, your beliefs, your resilience. Mm -hmm. And this is where resilience come in, comes into play. So it is not just an emotion. And when I, I work with people, the, the primary thing I do is create a safe container, mm -hmm. listen, receive, and do not offer any platitudes. There's a lot of like confirming and reassuring that, oh, it sounds like you might be grieving. Really? Like I have the right to grieve the fact that I'm no longer on the national team. Yeah. Yeah. It's your grief. Yeah, so tell me more. Loss. Do you want to talk to you yeah. more about that? So, you know, myth number two is grief is not just to be experienced when someone you love has died. Mm -hmm. It's a and lot of things. There, Absolutely. Right? And so, so then that people start to, you know, their windows or eyes start to go up and they're like, oh, I didn't realize that it's not just an emotion. You'll feel it in your body, potentially. You'll feel the disruption in interpersonal relationships, especially, for instance, think of it if you're in a couplehood, your partner dies. Now, all the other friends and couples in your life are like, ooh, do we invite Dina? It's just her now. And, shifts. Yes. Right? Am I still a big sister if my little sister dies? So there's a whole reordering oh, yeah. around our, our way of adjusting to new relationships. Then there's also the the cognitive effect that it has, we call it grief fog, which is why we recommend don't make any big life decisions, you know, well into a year after your loss, where maybe things are starting to get a little less foggy for you, maybe, and I'll come back to timeline in a moment. So, you know, and it has often, we talked about this earlier before we started recording, like spiritual dimensions, moral dimensions. So grief, the internal reordering, and we have to process this grief in a way that it feels met when we do that hard work. And there's no reward for speed and there's no attachment to outcome when you do grief work. Yeah. Right? How does that compute with our North American focus on consume more, produce more? Yeah, and, and goal-oriented, right? I, I reach this part, and then I set another goal, and I move on to the next one and to the next one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, this is not like that. No, it's not. And so it's going to feel more like the way we talk about it, and, and the research talks about this dual process model, which just means we oscillate, mm -hmm. or I call it the two-step. Sometimes I'm in grief work. And I do the work of grieving. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I'm in life work and I'm readjusting how I'm going to live my life, like pay the bills and mm -hmm. maybe put the Christmas lights up if I'm not the one that used to do it and do all of these new things or these must do things that are bringing me back into my life. Mm -hmm. And then I have to go back and do the hard work of grief work and reorder my life there. And mm -hmm. so it's more like a dance then it is a linear process. So back to your point around other grief teachings, you know, so Tracy died 21 years ago mm -hmm. and you'll notice Trudy, I use her name. I don't just say my sister. Yeah. So a grief teaching here for anyone's listening, ask the person that you're companioning, because this is what I do. I'm a grief companion. I don't use the word therapist mm -hmm. because I'm not a counselor or a therapist. What I am is a companion. And I, I want to invite all of us to learn the tenets of being a grief companion because the whole world is going to need all of us to become more grief and loss literate. Mm -hmm. So another tenet in terms of grief is no matter how long the timeline is from the moment the person you love died or you had that big G grief moment, mm -hmm. for me, it's been 21 years, I can experience what the literature calls a stug, a sudden temporary upsurge in grief. Oh, this I is get that. Therese Rando's work, yes. right? Where all of a sudden a memory, a smell, a sound, an experience, and you are back there in that moment as if it happened. It happened just then. Just then. My, uh, about four years after my mom died, uh, I went into my GPs because I was feeling low. And she told me that I had incomplete grief that I'd sort of stalled, um, that I hadn't finished it yet. And I, I, I brought this back to Angie and Angie's like, oh, for fuck's sakes. So pardon me. <laughs> but it's like, no, that's not how this works. And I love what you've just given us. Stug. Yeah. Give, give that to me again. It's a, a sudden, sudden, temporary 
upsurge, upsurge in grief. In grief. A stug. Yeah. Stug. And if you have little, you know, show notes, I can absolutely share some some written texts yeah. for you and others who might want to know. So stug, who knew? Who it's knew? a thing. Until you've been through it and you're like, oh, why do I still feel like it just happened? Huh. A stug. Who knew? You don't know what's normal until you begin to talk with someone who knows. And they, uh, they blow away the miasma. What an interesting conversation I'm having. I am so grateful for this meander. And I'm learning a lot from Dina. Thank you for sticking with us up to this point on Meanderings with Trudy. And um, let's keep going. And, it, yeah. you know, sometimes they hold on for a couple of days. Sometimes it's just there and gone. Um, the feeling is almost always that same rawness and and almost inconsolable. But then it's gone again. And it's like, oh, I had no idea that was... Uh, something I, I I figured it was normal because it was happening. Exactly. And when my when my doctor said, "Well, you know, you haven't done it right," I was like, "No, that's not right." <laughs> oh, I love that. You, know? you haven't done it right. Yeah. Wow. So I'm gonna. There's a lot to share there, but before we do, I wonder. So, what was your mom? What's your mom's name? <laughs> Cynthia. Yeah. Cynthia. But she was known as Bunny. That was her nickname. Bunny. Can we call her Bunny? Sure. Yeah. So Bunny has, when did she die? Seven years ago. Seven, seven years ago at the end of September, the 24th oh, of September. Oh, and I can feel, you feel it, eh? Mm. Just even saying her name. Mm -hmm. It's bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, now you're going to make me cry. <laughs> or I am going to cry. Yeah. 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 So see what we're doing here? Yeah. No, well, at least it's been seven years. Mm -hmm. At least she's not suffering. Yeah. At least, at least, at least. At least, at least, at least. And yet sitting with that feeling is, I always feel when it comes up, it's important to honor it. Mm -hmm. And it's my way of honoring how I feel about her and honoring her. Yeah, you know? exactly. Because yeah. Bunny meant something to you. She mm -hmm. was your mom, probably yeah. your number one fan. <laughs> that right? Too. Yep. Yeah. 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 And we're so quick to walk away from these feelings when they come up. And it's not a sign of brokenness. It's a sign of love. Okay. So you just shared it. What if we were to reimagine a new relationship with loss, such yeah. as our grief is actually welcomed as the highest expression of our love yeah absolutely and would we ever say to you trudy i think you're stuck so i can i can share a little bit more about mm -hmm. that yeah please do so there's something called the dsm the diagnostic yep. statistical manual and we're at number five now and this mm -hmm. is where you know it's a big big manual that that creates that basically is is housed to a lot of the pathologies that allows therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists to go in and and research oh well there's this there's this pathology and yeah. there's this disorder so yeah. in in the grief disorder oh, i just yeah uh -huh. yeah it's, it, it's focusing on the brokenness as opposed to the naturalness right yeah yeah so just allow that her words of you're not doing it right yeah. so here's a couple of things that i've come to know and appreciate and I want to say this in a way that also honors, you know, the profession of people who are trying to make sense of disorders mm -hmm. of, you know, pathologies. And there's a couple of things I'd like to say. One is the vast majority of our research is pathology based, right? We tend to study the places that scare us. Mm -hmm. So when we we're not likely to be studying post-traumatic growth, for instance, the way in which we're studying cancer and, and other forms of let's say, post-traumatic stress syndrome. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go in and have that kind of focus because we want to eliminate bad things from happening. So in the DSM-5, a new entry is prolonged grief disorder. And in my book, I make the case, I hope compelling, based on my research and also based on the voices of, you know, dozens and dozens of academics and researchers and, and grief educators who are saying, listen, folks, the vast majority of the bereaved, right, 
are people who are going to naturally move through their grief. And grief naturally is complicated Mm -hmm. because our relationship with that which we have lost, ouch, is often complicated, layered, and nuanced. Mm -hmm. And when we attach a disorder to it, we often trigger shame. Something is wrong with me. So I have to go to a therapist or a psychologist to make this go away or to suppress it or to deal with it and put it away Mm -hmm. and get over it. Mm -hmm. And what we would say is in grief, the point or the goal or the objective is not to get over it. It's to metabolize it. It's It's to to embrace it, hold it, it, experience it, make it part of you. Exactly. Because it already is. It already is. Like, you know, oh, my arm broke. I guess I'm going to cut it off. Like, I I would no sooner do that. And yet that is how the approach that we take to to grief now is like, I want, I I don't want that. I'm going to stick it over there. So I don't have, it's hard. It feels bad. I don't want it. (laughs) So it's a beautiful metaphor that you've just said. So when we arm, when we lose an arm, Mm -hmm. right, we have the scar and the tissue and we look back, do we ever say to someone, well, don't, don't mourn the fact that you don't have the hand. I mean, there's research that says that people actually have have pain, right? They have psychic and, and physical pain, even years and years later after, because their their attachment to their body doesn't compute with the fact that the rest of their limb isn't there. Mm-hmm. So we have pathologized, there's a, a high risk that we are going to pathologize uh, what we would say is naturally complicated grief. Now there are instances, and you know, I write about this in my book where my mom, you know, years and years, like 15, 16 years later, mm-hmm. where, you know, that stuckness that you were experiencing, right? Mm-hmm. Where, and we we talk about, you know, traumatic responses to grief and all grief has some form of, uh, not all grief has traumatic experiences related to it, right? Mm-hmm. But all trauma carries some form of grief. So depending on the nature of when your mom, when she died, how she died, what your relationship with was her, how you were able to reconcile your experience, Mm -hmm. it's going to shift and shape your own um, journey through the integration process. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. My my own experience speaks to that. Absolutely. Yeah. And so what I think is more healthy is if you, you know, and, and this is where it's really interesting and see if this resonates with you. Trudy. So in grief uh, parlance, what I'd like to say is, and this is one of my other teachers who shared this with me from zero to 12 months, you're an infant in your grief. The same Mm -hmm. is true with babies. So what would you expect a baby to do? Eat, Mm -hmm. sleep, poop, all kinds Mm -hmm. of biological needs, right? Cry. You are not asking and cry. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You're not asking them to, you know, climb mountains unless they're ready. So zero to 12, and then we have our toddler years, and then we have our discovery years, and then we have our adolescent years into our grief and early adulthood. So now Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm early adulthood in my grief, my capacity to talk about my sister Mm -hmm. who died 21 years ago, has been shaped and formed through my own lived experience, Mm -hmm. and my willingness to do the work. I'm going to give you a different story. So my dad died, right? Mm -hmm. Six weeks ago now. I'm so fresh in my grief and I find myself, you know, doing this and it's really helpful to understand my coping. So coping practices, Mm -hmm. am I adaptive and healthy in my coping practices? And when do I slip into a maladaptive, unhealthy practice? Mm -hmm. Super helpful to catch myself. Mm -hmm. So I know I have a tendency to be stoic and courageous and focus on projects And so if I find myself slipping into that Mm -hmm. at the expense of my more emotional needs, right. Around crying and letting go. And, and I'm looking at him now on my, on my Mm -hmm. screen, you know, it's so my experience with my dad is so different. And in part it's because it wasn't an out of order death, right. My dad was 80. Mm -hmm. My experience with watching him dance with dementia, that whole suffering of watching someone you love die with dementia excruciating painful so i had you know three four years of being his companion through you know a lifelong illness not a lifelong illness but a life limiting illness so it prepared me for for his uh his death and almost welcomed it right because at the end at the end he wanted to die yeah 
So very, very different. So understanding our coping practices. And you know, one thing, Trudy, that was so helpful to me is looking at Gary Chapman's work. Oh, right? the, five, the love languages or beyond yeah. that. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So if I'm quality time, acts of service, right? Words of appreciation, mm-hmm. you know, depending on my love language, mm-hmm. gifts from touch. the heart, yes. physical mm-hmm. touch, mm-hmm. I am going to, in my most vulnerable state, and I am most vulnerable when I'm grieving, mm-hmm. I will want people to show their love language in a way that I express mine. So if I can know what someone's love language is, I will try and offer grief support in a way that will most be well-received for them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What was your dad's name again? Michael. Michael. Mike. But we <laughs> called him Buck. He was Buck Bell, <laughs> right, when he was growing up. And, and we all called him Gramps because, of course, yeah, of my, course. Kid, sure. my sister's yeah. boy uh, called him Gramps. Oh, actually, the whole family, all my nieces and nephews called my dad Gramps. So. Nice. He, uh, and he loved the little kids. His last, the last thing he said to me was, I love you too, my darling. Mm. And that's the last thing my sister said to me. Yeah. And she actually didn't say it. She, she pointed. Mm. So that sign language of I love you is so etched in my heart. And I'm like, how fortunate am I that the last thing I heard and received from two people I loved most in the world my sister and my dad were, I love you. Like, yeah. Are you, are you a words of affirmation person? I am. What <laughs> <laughs> gave it away. Yeah. yeah. And mm. acts of service. Yeah. And acts of service. Well, mm. that's clear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. This is quite a gift you're bringing to the world, you know. Mm. At a time, I think we all need it. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe as a result of this, thank you for that. And I, I feel, you know, the launching of Grief Unleashed last year was mm-hmm. like birthing. You know, I birthed three children. This was like birthing a fourth. And I'm just birthing this book that's taken me you know, 21 years to germinate and, and mm-hmm. actively writing it for, for seven. Um, and I handed the last manuscript to my publisher on, on her death anniversary, you know, last year and then spent, and she's like, you need to write more. This is really good stuff. So my, my last chapter in the book um, really speaks about becoming a grief companion. Mm-hmm. And as a coach, you know, I'm trained in the integral method mm-hmm. um, through ICC. Mm-hmm. And like you have become like a lifelong practitioner. So, you know, becoming more adept and nimble and skillful and trying to accompany human beings in their life experience. Mm-hmm. And what I think you might find really interesting, Trudy, and, and maybe your listeners, if they're coaches, every time we meet a client, they're they're coming to us often, right? Not always but often because they have this longing to be different, a longing to change, a longing to achieve something that has been eluding them. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I often find, you know, well, let's, okay. So tell me more about this. What have you tried? You know, why is this important to you? And as we start to go deeper into their beliefs, their assumptions, right? What is it about this topic that's really burning inside of them? And we use different ways to to do that. What I started to realize as I was training as a thanatology student, my capacity to listen and receive differently was growing Mm -hmm. because I could feel their attachment to their current way. Mm -hmm. I could feel their attachment to the values and the beliefs and the accolades and all the ways in which their current relationship with that topic, with that longing um, was so important to them. Mm-hmm. And so by asking, by acknowledging that and finding with often it was just so nuanced mm-hmm. that I could, I could feel in me the capacity to ask a question differently, or maybe it was just the way my body relaxed and, and I could, I could, feel the openness that you were the expansion that you were speaking to earlier Mm -hmm. something shifted and settled 
and their, their, their way of being and the practices that we co-create, it was like, oh, it was next level. Mm-hmm. I don't know if any of that resonates. But mm-hmm. That has been the gift in my coaching is like the slowing down, the, the being in service of, the noticing of my, my body and my container as a coach and um, bearing witness to someone else and how that was regulating them and how we were now in that space of how attached they are to this really important topic. It, it's, it's really at a very subtle, but such a beautiful level and it's deeper and more profound. And, and um, so this, this companionship model that I've, mm-hmm. you know, burst into the world and, and I'm training people in the helping profession and ideally it's coaches, right? That's who I want to work with mm-hmm. sport coaches and coaches like us. Mm-hmm. Who want to be in service of others this six months journey that i did with other coaches transformed my my capacity at another level so mm-hmm. every time i do this work mm-hmm. it's like something else awakens mm-hmm. yeah as you're talking i'm just um well first i'm i love what you've what you've said the phrase that kept coming up for me was was that encompasses it is this whole notion of deep listening so that you can truly hold everything that's there in all of its various um, kaleidoscope of ways that it shows up. Um, so, so there's that. And the more that I work with people, the more that I realize how much we're holding of woundings and and grief big and big small t trauma and how that is manifesting I, i've had a few clients who um are either parenting children that they've adopted or and angie and i talked about this on uh on one of our previous podcasts this um this fall about being adopted and that grief no matter how supportive and wonderful and excellent if that has been your experience in your adoptive family is there's still for some probably many that sense of why was i given up why was i rejected why was i you know if you were taken away why was it taken away and putting in the canadian context the whole 60s scoop thing and the removal of children from their homes and that's just one way and that's both a big and a small G, big and a small T, trauma, grief and trauma. Our inability to process these things that we have experienced that cause us heart, heartache, hardship, it shows up in how we um, get stuck in our own lives. And the ability to have a different language and a different way to cope with and work through those things is absolutely increasingly, I think, vital, particularly yeah. on the heels of the, of the pandemic, but well before just how do we, how do we deal with that? And it just, I'm just so very, it's resonating so strongly for me, the importance of what it is that you're doing and not just in the, in the, the work that you do with your own clients, but in, in teaching others the language and the dance mm. of how to companion people through their grief. Yeah. Beautiful. And, and I, I want to honor what you're noticing around, you know, loss. So, so different forms of loss, right? We've talked about the, the death of someone you want, and let's agree that most people are more forgiving and they tend to understand that. So they'll, they, there's a hierarchy to grief that people don't talk about. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, you've lost, you've lost a parent or a spouse or a child, like that's, that's way up there. Sure. Sibling loss, often what we call the disenfranchised grievers. So there's another term for you and your listeners to take in mm-hmm. disenfranchised in my grief. So adopted children, adopted parents, mm-hmm. children, parents who are, or families who are infertile, right? Mm-hmm. Disenfranchised in their grief, members of the um, the gender and sexual minority, LGBTQ2+, right? Mm-hmm. So often disenfranchised in their experience of loss over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Athletes 
who didn't make the national team athletes who came in fourth, like there's a tendency, well, at least you made the team or at least, you, you know, you, you were almost on the podium yeah. or at least you got to be like an Olympian. Like what's, mm-hmm. like, why are you like, people are suffering in the world. Mm-hmm. So we tend to reduce, we compete with each other in our grief experience. Yeah. And back to, you know, your beautiful observation around loss for, for adoptive children, you know, many of the adoptive children are, are often adopted, you know, before the age of two and mm-hmm. they're in their sensory motor developmental stage, right? right? Where everything is physical in their body. So I know for my nephew, Liam, and I know for my daughter, Talia, that they were experiencing Tracy's loss. Absolutely. It, mm-hmm. They were infants though, right? Mm-hmm. So Liam was 13 and Talia was 15 months. They could feel our loss and their way, especially my, my nephew, he was getting lots of tummy aches from the moment she died until, you know, several years after Mm -hmm. his body, he could not, he was nonverbal. His body was the one that was communicating his grief, but nobody took us aside and said, listen, you know, he's in this stage of development and you are going to re-grieve throughout your lifetime. So if we understood as parents that children will grieve Mm -hmm. and they know naturally to express their emotions, they are, the adult in us want to cap that and mm-hmm. make it neat and, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, stop your, your, or stick an umbrella breath. up so that they don't have to experience I, it. Shelter exactly. them from it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Again, you don't know what you don't know. Of course, children experience grief differently than I would. They experience grief at the emotional level of development that they're at. What a great insight. Wow. Ah, again, I'm so grateful for this conversation with Dina. I hope you're enjoying this. We're just getting prepared to wrap things up. So please stick with us to the end. So I think it's really important as I I start to do this work, because I work with families, it's the normalizing of everybody. So children grieve differently and they're going to re-grieve and make new meaning as their cognitive capacities come online. Mm really important to use right terminology because a lot of people will say should you bring your kids so my kids came to see came to see my dad Mm -hmm. right they chose what they wanted to do now they're young adults but Mm -hmm. you know there's a lot of shock and awe around this well remember not too far in the past we used to have salons in our houses absolutely we used to show people we used to bathe our people i was going to say we used to prepare we used to lay hands on it was the final act of Love. love (laughs) <laughs> yes. Yeah. The absolutely. final act of love. So how we are yeah. with our, our grief is an indicator, I would say, of health. And right yeah. now in Canada, how healthy are we with the dying? Mm-hmm. So I do work around, you know, trying to advocate for Canadian hospice and palliative care. I'm trained in dignity therapy. We're trying to work with people who are dying or close to their mm-hmm. end of life. They might have a life limiting illness. And asking them you would know powerful questions like what is it about your life that you would like your family to know more about Mm. you know is there a a time in your life that really stands out for you that you would like to capture here what's a life lesson what's a regret you know what more do you want to share so we capture these beautiful uh responses in a in a binder in a document and then Mm -hmm. we hand that to the person and their families as a keepsake, right? Mm -hmm. That captures some of the ways in which my life mattered. Mm -hmm. That is dignity. From their words. From their words. From their own words. I'm just the scribe. Right. Right. We record it verbatim. There's this beautiful process. It is rich and as coaches, Mm -hmm. what I'm inviting us into is when I train people in the companioning model, you know, the tenant, first tenant is you cannot companion anyone where you yourself dare not go. Right. Of course. Yeah. So if you're not going to do the hard work of your, on your own grief. You're not. Yes. You can do this kind of work on behalf of someone else. Cause we can yeah. sniff it out when we're vulnerable. We can sniff That's out right. whether or not you're preaching at me or you're really my companion. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, embedded in the companioning model is this way of holding a conversation and the dignity therapy model you know it's a it's an exquisite conversation that i had with my mom recently Mm -hmm. 
it's an exquisite conversation you can have with your life partner. Mm-hmm. Don't wait until they're dying yeah, or worse after they've died mm-hmm. to have the beautiful conversation about the meaning of their life. And in my book, I talk about meaning making, right? And I use Frankel's work and post-traumatic growth to mm-hmm. help us kind of live into the life mm-hmm. as awake people. If we're scared of dying, right? And we're fed a narrative of being grief phobic and death averse, our ability to be present is capped. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So your father had dementia before he died. Mike, Gramps. Gramps. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. How did you how did you handle that with him so that you could capture this kind of thing? You know, I I, I in my eulogy to my dad, mm-hmm. I, I called it a death by a thousand losses. Yes. You had a, a blog post that I read around that. Yeah. And I, I converted it into a blog as a healthy healing practice, because as one of my centers says to me, Dina, you write your way into being. Mm. So finding my pen is finding my voice is finding my soul. Right. Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. that resonates with you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, you know, I, there's one thing to know it and have researched it. You know, and I, I, I researched made and and sure. researched, you know, I know about the effects of watching someone you love die. And and I talked and I did a paper on, on, you know, dementia and other cognitive illnesses. When you're living it, it is at a quite a different level, as, as you know, yeah. Trudy. So I think what was most helpful is that I had a guide myself, my mom. Mm -hmm. Right. And we were united as a bond. And even though my parents were divorced, they were each other's best friends and he died in her arms. Mm -hmm. So we were able to slowly, you know, find the words to say, dad, you have a cognitive impairment, dad, you know, your dementia is advancing. So when he would present, you know, it's slippery, eh? Mm -hmm. The first instances of dementia, they're really slippery. It's like, oh gosh, he's, he's being difficult forgetting everything all the time or like one more thing for me to have to do right mm. with three children at the time and a business and nah, nah, nah. it was it was so difficult and so easy to not see the illness for what it was yeah so so working with the doctor and getting the diagnostic was helpful mm-hmm. so i could be more helpful and i could find the right language um and then the difficult dance of moving him from our family home and finding, you know, uh, he, he lived in a retirement residence a kilometer from my house and the anguish of picking him up was easy, dropping him off at the, at the care yeah, home. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a death by a thousand losses for mm-hmm. me. Right. And watching my dad lose his license and then forget his grandchildren's name and then forget my name and then watch him relive the death of his younger daughter, Tracy. Like those are the deaths, the, the you know, the, the big deaths that I would witness over and over and over again. So back to that, that beautiful early conversation that you and I had, self-care is an ethical imperative. Mm-hmm. I would not have been able to get through this with my soul intact, you know, had I not, had I not, had that kind of fortitude to say, okay, I need to oxygenate myself. I need to stay informed. I need to have my healthy healing coping Mm -hmm. practices Mm -hmm. and make that a priority. And that requires courage. As interestingly as it seems, it's hard to put yourself, or at least for me, to make my needs an ethical imperative. And when I did, I was able to make better, better choices to be of support to him. Mm-hmm. until mm-hmm. he died yeah yeah well thank you for that and i'm sorry for your loss i'm also glad that you had that relationship yeah yeah the deeper the love the greater the grief absolutely absolutely that's that whole opposite sides of the same experience you can't have one without the other yeah and, you know, there's a beautiful uh, book, this poet uh, who's out from uh, Victoria, and she's come into my life. And, and she says, maybe we can end on this. She, mm-hmm. she um, 
I gift this to any of the people that I'm supporting. This is a poem called Healing, and she writes, Healing does not happen with force. It is intuitive, deeply wise, as if it keeps its own noetic rhythm. It takes the shape of a flower's patient opening and the surrender of leaves to the turn of season. Mm. It shows us to trust the process, only to sense when the time is right for its infinite compassion to move through dark places, to turn pain into light. Lovely. And who who is that? That's poet Carolyn Miskinak. She's a Canadian poet out West. And I purchased like 50 of her poetry books. <laughs> my, my grief companions when they journey with me on this little voyage okay. that I'm I'm launching. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well, we'll put the, uh, the link to the book um, and, uh, and to anything else that you want to have in the episode notes. Okay. Thank you. This was really lovely. Delightful. Thanks for listening. Thanks for asking. Mm. That's, that's half the, half the battle. Half the invitation is asking, let's have a conver- a real conversation mm. about what it means to be human, which includes what it means to suffer and what it means to die, what it means to be with dying and death and hope and joy. And love. And love. Because that is it, right? I mean, how do you companion with someone experiencing all those things, if not for being carried with love? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Trudy. I think I will invite Dina back to Meanderings with Trudy so we can explore further all these ideas around death and bereavement. I really love what she said about um, reimagining a new relationship with loss. I think that's something that we really could use. I hope you enjoyed this too. I hope you've subscribed and if you haven't, you will do. And please share this episode in particular among your friends so that we can increase our literacy around grief and bereavement. If you have any comments for me, please send them to me at meanderingswithtrudy at gmail.com. And I hope you'll join us for our next episode in the coming week. Talk to you soon. Thanks for joining me. I'm Trudy Chapman. <laughs>